411 Live. Well, you can learn about issues that affect us every day. State of World 411 Live. Real people, real talk. Made to help people in our community in every way. For your Looking after your fellow man or woman is something we all should and can do. Many of us do it, but on a small scale. Thank goodness for people who have devoted their lives and their careers to doing it. Hello, I'm Beverly Taylor. This is the 411 Live, real people, real talk. Joining me is a person who is a leader in anti-poverty efforts in greater Milwaukee, Deborah Blanks. Deborah is the former CEO of the Social Development Commission, or SDC. She served for 15 years there. Thank you for your service in that. She served in a capacity of leading the agency and meeting the evolving needs of the low-income community. She's also an author, and she also is now leading a family-owned communications consultant firm called Cairo Communications. Welcome to you, Deborah. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I am too. I'm looking forward to our chat today. We are living, as you know, in very interesting times. You've got the coronavirus. We've got protests. We've got election aftermath. We've got job losses. There seems to be a resurgent of overt uh, racism as well. I want you, if you will, to retell the story, your experience on the uh, election texting that you went through? Sure. Well, I had volunteered to work with Sherwood Mint team, Mm -hmm. making phone calls. And also I was working with the NAACP and they asked me to text or call 20 people. Uh, So I did, I text most of them and You know, it was a short, brief text. Hi, I'm Deb from NAACP. No, you're busy, so let me keep it brief. Just want to know if you have a plan. Let me know, that kind of thing. And, of course, one person said stop because we were all getting overloaded and tired. Another said I'm voting tomorrow. And then another text came in that basically said, you want me to say the, as as it was said? Go for it. Okay, they said, fuck off, nigger. Go back to picking cotton. Wow. Now, when I went back to the list that I was sent, because I was shocked, I realized that the person I had texted was not the person who responded. Mm. And so that stayed with me for a while, and it made me even stronger in my belief that Joe Biden had to win. Yeah. Yeah. Because we need to figure out a way to move forward. And even with the election of him and Kamala Harris, there's still a feeling of disillusionment, of anger, of fear, because I think it reinforced this idea that we still live in a racist society. Yeah. What do you think fosters this racism? Do you think it's fear? ignorance um what what do you think is is behind it i think there are a lot of things behind it one most people don't know our history they don't know the real american history they definitely don't know the african-american history because if they did they'd realize that 
Black folks have done so much for this country. We are so resilient. Even when we have to stay, withstand brutality, mm-hmm. we continue to contribute. We continue to hold up this country as the election and Black participation in voting showed. Uh, but also there's this sense of white entitlement. And I don't think many white people or not enough white people really understand how entitled they are. But for instance, if you just look at President Trump's administration, there are so many things that they were able to get away with that. And we know it. If President Obama had even thought about doing those things, he would have been impeached. He would have been uh, misaligned. Um, and so I think it's the, the lack of knowledge. It's the white entitlement. And it's the real sense that people have believed that Blacks and people of color are inferior. And they can use that to rationalize and justify actions that aren't appropriate and are dangerous. Right. And I, I, I think there is this fear because our population is changing. Definitely. You know? Definitely. And yeah. And, you know, it was that fear that drove people to treat slaves or the enslaved people wrong because as our population grew, and not just in slavery time, but in the early 1900s and the civil rights movement, time and time again, as the Black population started to grow, too many whites became fearful that we were going to take over jobs or we were going to take over housing or we were and not realizing that many times what African-Americans wanted wasn't to take over, but be to be accepted, to have the same opportunities afforded to anyone else to build a good life for their families. Yeah, we want a piece of the pie, too. Exactly. Yeah. Talking about um, the knowledge, people are ignorant that they don't, they don't know history, they don't know the African-American history, which is the American history, but... Mm-hmm. Um, you and your son are about to push out something that I think is fantastic and to help in that arena. Uh, I think it's called the African-American History App, right? Right. And yeah, it's an African-American History App. We, our tentative name for it is called Black History. Oh, okay. Um, and it's a part of the business plan that my son my daughter-in-law, Element, and I collectively have worked on for several years, and we hope to have it available at the end of the year. Okay. Let's talk about how, how that all came together, because you were telling me when he was a little boy, you were, I guess you already have formed the pieces for this app, right? With all your questions. From sure. And, and my son hates this story. <laughs> um But he says, okay, it's fine. You can tell it. But my son was about, he was in fourth or fifth grade. And the school he went to, I had chosen because I thought it would be great for him. Well, they put him in accelerated math class and he was only black child in there. So when they would go to recess right after class, he, he told me on a ride home one day, he said, mom, I go to recess with, I'm walking with these white kids, but the black kids are on the playground and they're playing separate. And I want to play with them, but should I play with the whites? Can I go play with the blacks and black kids? And my view was as a black young man, you have to be able to connect with your own people. 
But as a black man, you have to be able to relate to everybody mm-hmm. and move through the world. And so I started writing this African-American history book and realized I'm no historian. Someone's going to accuse me of plagiarism. So I pulled together 500 questions from uh, the book I was writing, put it in a notebook. I changed Gerard to Morse Middle School, where Rogers Onik was the principal. And Gerard would take this notebook to study hall every day. And he started going through it and getting fascinated. And he'd come home every day saying, Ma, ask me questions, ask me questions. Well, that was great for the first hundred days <laughs> or so. But what it did was really give him a strong sense of not just who he was, but who his people were. Mm-hmm. And so from there, he, we actually wrote a play and um, Dr. Onyx let us put it on with 45 kids from Morris Middle School. I directed one performance, Gerard directed the second. Then he went to Morris Middle School. Uh, and when he was in history class, the teacher started saying, well, this is what I'm going to teach in African-American history this year. And my son said to the teacher, so this is all you got? <laughs> well, he got kicked out for that one day of class. Then he moved to Marshall and did some great things there. But when he went to UWM, he and Dante McFadden and others started a group called Scope. Students Creating Opportunities to Provide Education and Entertainment. Uh, Gerard wrote and received $80,000 of funding from private foundations. Reuben Harpo was a supporter of his. Um, The group brought in Maya Angelou and filled up the Klosky Center. They brought in Michael Eric Dyson, The Last Poets. Mm -hmm. They started this group called Whitson Week, where in April for a week they put on African-American history-relevant um, activities. And so I could see the impact of history on his life. Now he is the director of cultures and communities for Milwaukee film with black lens and other programming. And also he's working on his PhD at Northwestern, looking at issues of culture and media studies. So I really see, yeah, I see the impact of the need for Black folks to know who we are and the power that builds inside of us, Mm -hmm. as my son exemplifies, but also the need for people of all races to understand who we are as Blacks, to understand our contributions, our challenges, how we've overcome, and how we continue to be resilient. Yeah, absolutely. I like that story. Um, I mentioned that for 15 years you were with the SDC, uh, mm-hmm. Social Development Commission. Uh, what made you want to be in that community action arena? Well, I think really there were two things. Uh, one, my mom and dad left Illinois to go down to Raleigh, North Carolina. They attended St. Augustine's College and HBCU. My dad became a professor, athletic director, and coach there. And so we had the privilege to live in faculty housing on campus. And so you were awakened in the morning by the fraternities and sororities marching around the angle, the pledges marching to the cafeteria. You were just engulfed in some ways with the civil rights movement. Even though I was a six-year-old, I'd run to the fence and see the big college students with their protest signs getting ready to march downtown. You know, it was the civil rights movement. It was that time. 
And so you couldn't be, uh, you had to be connected if you were a young black growing up in the South. The other thing for me though is, and wanting to give back that tradition of black folks, you know, of giving back, of helping each other, of mutual aid. The other thing was when my son was, when I was pregnant with my son, I decided to separate um, Uh from my marriage and within a year was divorced and needed to move for um, a better job. And I sort of made this, as corny as it sounds, this commitment to make sure my son had a quality life. And then it dawned on me, you just can't focus on him. You have to focus on his friends, Morel and Dante and Latif and other and Sterling. And just then it was like, no, you really have to focus on helping make lives better for all children and understand that their parents really want, most parents want the best for their children. So those beliefs and ideas led me to SDC. Yeah. Yeah, because when I think of SDC, I think of Head Start. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Um, what do you, there's so many ways, that, places I want to go with this, but I, I know we're limited on time. Let me go to this authored report, research report called uh, Project Central Voice. Mm-hmm. The, it was focused on survey, uh, surveying uh, residents community-based organizational leaders, government officials, in order to gain their perspectives regarding the city of Milwaukee's community development, block grants, community organizing, and crime prevention efforts. Okay, I'm reading that off, but that's that's it in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. Sure, sure. So you guys, you're, you're embarking on this, and you're finding out different things about these organizations that get these block grants to help these uh what underprivileged communities or oh, how would you de- describe sure. it? Well, the community block grant development block grant fundings go to central city on the North side and central city on the South side. There are specific areas in the community that this funding for the most part, this funding is targeted to. Um, and so our research, it, it became a part of my dissertation and I was honored that the Greater Milwaukee Foundation um, agreed to award us a grant of $70,000 so I could actually pay members to be a part of the team because too often we ask Black folks to volunteer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I wanted to honor them and respect them by being able to pay them. And so there was about 12 of us. Only one was not a African-American. Most of the folks who were a part of this were just regular folks who had a love of community, a love of research, wanted to reach out into the community. And so uh, what we did was we formed a community research team, did community-based research, um, interviewed over 120 people of color, primarily Blacks, interviewed some people at the city, um, most of the people that we interviewed were residents, but we also interviewed nonprofit leaders of color as well as nonprofit leaders, um, white nonprofit leaders who were receiving funding from um, the city to do this work. It was important to me because too often, and this is a lesson I learned uh, with SDC, too often we are looking at 
people that don't look like us come in and provide services to us. And for me, it became the wrong message. It became this idea of missionary complex. We're going to rush in and save you, and you need to be appreciative. And we're going, and, and so often I felt like there were people in the neighborhood not able to uh, contribute the way they wanted to because their, their values and their culture and their strengths were being ignored. And so as we went through this, we found that the city, um, probably to 80, 85% funded white organizations to provide these community organizing and crime prevention services. And they also received the bulk of the funding. Uh, and when we talked to people of color, they would say, we don't think the city quite understands us. We don't trust what's going on. Uh, we feel disrespected and unheard. And then when we talked to nonprofit leaders that were black, they would say, you know, Deborah, we can do this work. We have a track record. We have the connection to the community. We oftentimes do this work with very little compensation. We don't get the glory or the praise, but we'll keep doing it because we're committed to our community. You know, I'm gonna stop you right there. We have to take a quick break. We're gonna come back and continue this conversation on this, this project and the findings within it. So stay with us. We'll be right back. Even though there is so much against us. You will see me choose to protect myself and my community from the coronavirus by wearing a face covering. Because it's gonna take all of us thinking about one another. And even with my face covered, you will see me. You will see me as a mother, a wife, a friend. As an athlete who gave everything to the game I love. As a father, leading by example. As a sister. An entertainer. As a champion for my people. You will see me finding a light in a dark time. To unlock our creativity and push our craft. You will see me demanding the space to tell the stories that matter. As a man who knows that tough times don't last, but tough people do. Join us in wearing a face covering to help stop the spread of the coronavirus. Because covering your face is one small act of kindness that has the power to bring us together. Welcome back to the 411 Live. I'm having a conversation with Deborah Blanks, and we were in the midst of a conversation about a uh, project that they did, uh, Project Central Voice, a report uh, that uh, Deborah authored. And one of the things, uh, and you touched on this, one of the things that I have noticed for with some well-intentioned organizations that come in and they want to help and they see a community that they think is underprivileged or they might they might turn in uh term them dysfunctional whatever they might mm -hmm. see them as and they say basically okay you guys move out of the way we're going to come in and save you you know we're going to save you and the people who are in that community are looking like who are you you know, and then and the people who are coming in to do the saving, they do what they think will help. And some of it will, but some of it misses the mark because they haven't brought people who are in that in that community to their table to ask them, what do you need? And that that whole I'm going to save you mentality 
misses the mark, causes hard feelings, and this kind of thing. Whereas it really didn't have to if we had pulled these people, make them stakeholders in this project so they have a voice. Is that what you're saying? Uh, definitely. And in fact, I would say that there are a couple of things going on. One is this idea of the missionary complex. We'll come in, we'll rescue you. We'll give ourselves awards. We'll praise us mm. uh, for doing this wonderful work. And we will then, in some ways, feel like we've, we're repaying a debt so we don't have to feel guilty about the racism that exists. We don't have to pay attention to structural and systemic issues or racial inequality. The other idea, too, is oftentimes what people bring into a community that they don't know is inappropriate. Mm. I remember talking to a gentleman who was uh, working with Black youth regarding sexual education, sex education. And he said to me, Deborah, you know, the funder wants me to teach these young people and connect with them with a certain curriculum. But when I bring that curriculum in, the young folks just laugh at me. They don't want to hear this. So he said, so I adapted it to connect with them based on the gentleman's own experiences and work and knowledge of the community. But when the funder came in, a white female came in to evaluate the program, she was highly critical because he hadn't used her curriculum. And so it's this sense of entitlement, it's this sense of knowing better for us than we know for ourselves, this idea of less use, the white developed um, curriculums when Black folks have our own style, our own way of communicating, our own way of being. And also it continues to keep us in a victim position, in a powerless position, and it continues to maintain the power of whites. Uh, that's unfortunate. So that kind of goes back to that whole uh, broaden your um, your awareness, the information stuff, like the app that you guys are, are developing, spreading the knowledge. So right, and I would, I would take it a step further. Mm -hmm. What I think and what, again, being at SDC, uh, conducting this research, working more into the community, and really learning from community residents, as well as people like Marquesa Tucker at Wisconsin Voices, Fred Royal at NAACP, Tammy Rivera with the Southside Organizing Center, and and others, what I started really learning and coming to grips with is you can have all the social service programs in the world that you want, but until you really understand the need to invest in the Black community, not invest in white organizations coming in to deliver services, because they oftentimes take their money into other parts of the city and the suburbs, and their staff often don't live in black community but if you really want to rebuild the black community and strengthen it you will invest in that infrastructure mm -hmm. you will look at what was happening in bronzeville when we and yeah there were problems with bronzeville but there were strong black businesses there was a business district there were black community organizations and there were black leaders and so we have to go back to that idea and really invest in rebuilding the black infrastructure. That's what will help us move out, out of poverty, that will help our youth 
believe in themselves and step away from violence because they can see a future for themselves and their families. Right. Cairo Communications, which you are um, a partner in, you guys did some work with the, this report, the Milwaukee Collaborative Community Committee, and that was looking at the, um, this report from the Department of Justice dealing with the Milwaukee Police Department. But you guys took it and took it into the community and got reaction from that report, uh, of that report from police officers, community, uh, you know, the whole gamut. <laughs> what did you, and by the way, I've, I've read this report and it, there's some really enlightening things in here. It was, it was good. Uh, especially like the history of, you know, racial tensions and things like that. What, what exactly were you trying to accomplish with this? Well, I really have to acknowledge the heavy lifting that Marquesa Tucker, Tammy Rivera, Fred Royal did, and now Nate Hamilton has stepped up and he's chairing that CCC community collaborative commission. Um, so they are with others doing the heavy lifting. Darut Consulting did a lot of the analysis of citizen input. Mm -hmm. um, what Cairo did, which I continue to value, is that idea of looking at history. What can history tell us? Because I believe that if we understand history, we'll understand why we are here, exactly where we are in this society today. And so when you look at history, you'll find that there were racial tensions bubbling up in Milwaukee in the 1940s and 50s. Um, you will understand that Chief Areola, Chief Haggerty, Chief Jones really were trying to push against the status quo of the Milwaukee Police Department, but often um, were received in a negative way. And their innovative uh, initiatives were often uh, resisted by the police officers. You also understand that, unfortunately, the city has paid out $30 million over the course of 50 years because of successful lawsuits, because of the murders and injuries of people of color, predominantly Black men. And I, I don't at all um, suggest that people shouldn't have sued. Yes, they should have. They deserve the funding. But I do, I would definitely say, but the city needs to find a better way of policing. They should really look at community policing and figure out how do you rebuild the trust between the police and the community? Because those funds, as, um, as much as they were necessary to be paid to families, we need to find a way to identify funds that can be used in a preventive measure yeah. to, again, support communities of color, to support the dreams and ideas and really strengthen the community policing relationship. And to make sure that the incident that's, incidents that happened that warranted the big payoff with, from these lawsuits, make sure they don't happen to begin with. Oh, exactly. I mean, when are we gonna learn the lessons? And I think not just in Milwaukee, but in throughout the nation, uh, we continue to look at say her name, Black Lives Matter, and other initiatives because Black folks have known for decades of police brutality. Now with social media, more people are starting to learn about it, but 
we need to find a way for it to stop. Absolutely. So what happens to you? You've done, you've had a hand in reports, research that come to conclusions, give recommendations. You do it, you give it to the people, the whoever commissioned it. Then what happens? You know, does the report, you know, just, it's just there? and nobody implements, what What are you seeing? Because I, I've always heard Milwaukee is a city of committees. You know, everybody has a committee uh, or a task force, and they come and they give the recommendations, and then there's no implementation. Well, I, I would agree. In fact, when I first went to SDC, I remember a gentleman who said, Deborah, we just had a great meeting on this critical issue. Let's have a press conference. And I was like, well, we haven't really done any work yet. <laughs> or you would hear about a white professor from Boston was coming in to change the community and get us on track. And some professors from Colorado, we, we seem like a community that we're good about announcing we're bringing people from the outside to tell us what we need to do. We're good about having the press conference. We're good about starting initiatives. We're not necessarily that good at actually bringing things to fruition. So with the work we did at Project Central Voice, uh, we held community meetings. We talked about the issues. And then things, I met with a couple of alter, alter persons, and then things faded away. Recently, though, I heard, uh, secondhand, that the impact of our work, there was an impact in the city and some things were changed. I don't know firsthand. What I do know, though, is that there is a need to stay vigilant, to continue to work, to understand that you may influence people without even knowing it. But if you don't do the work, if you're not invested in not just research, but identifying solutions and then working with people to help make those solutions come to fruition, you're wasting your time. And so I'm hoping, I'm the kind of person who, if you tell me no, and I believe strongly in what I'm doing, I'm going to keep figuring out a new strategy till I achieve what I'm trying to achieve. There you go. So that's what I'm going to keep doing. I'm glad you're going to keep doing it. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you, Deborah Blanks. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, I yeah. appreciate it. This has been a pleasure. Deborah, she wears a lot of hats. She, of course, she's the former CEO of the Social Development Commission, SDC. Um, she's written some books. She's doing a lot of work with her son. There's an app that's coming up that people need to check out. And she owns a, par is a partner with family-owned communication consultant firm called Cairo Communication. Again, thank you, Deborah. Thank you. Appreciate it. Sure thing. And thank you for tuning in another episode of the 411 Live Real People Real Talk. We are a nonprofit organization, so if you'd like to help us out, contribute, go to our website, the411live.org. We have lots of past podcasts. I uh, hope you will check those out. But for now, I'm Beverly Taylor, and this is the 411 Live Real People Real Talk. If you would like to check out past episodes, there are many ways. Go to your favorite podcast platform. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Like and watch us on Facebook. Watch and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And if you have suggestions for future episodes, go to our website, 
the411live.org.